Finance and History. The EABH Podcast. Looking for precedents from the exciting world of financial history. Follow us on bankinghistory.org. Welcome everybody to this episode of Finance and History, the podcast of the European Association for Banking and Financial History. My name is Carmen Hofmann, and today my guest is April Miller in Washington, D.C., April is a manager at the World Bank Group Archives and Records Unit. She has worked in the field of archives and records management since 2000 and is one of our members' most renowned experts in knowledge management and history. Welcome, April. I look much forward to our conversation today. Thanks, Carmen. Looking forward to it. To begin with, tell me, why are you an archivist? What about historical documents makes your heart sing? Good question. And you might be surprised to know that history and historical documents weren't really my driving uh, motivation to get into the world of archives. It wasn't history really at all. I started my university life as an English major with a, a minor in business and economy. And I, I really thought I wanted to get into computer coding or library tech, something that would use my, my language and my literacy skills. But the more I looked into library curricula and library schools, it didn't really resonate with me. And a professor at the University of Calgary, where I went to school, put me on to the archival studies program at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, in Canada, where I'm from. And I looked into the program and was just so intrigued, you know, this idea of of how records and archives play a vital role in society, how they help the creating organizations, how they help public sector bodies. And I, I really was intrigued by the role of archivists, how they can help make that happen, accountability and transparency aspects of the work as well that I, I was really drawn to. But the program, which was at the time headed by um, Dr. Luciana Duranti, also included a, a cutting edge research project in the field of electronic records and electronic records preservation. So the tech aspect was there and it was um, just really exciting to be part of that program and uh, met a lot of lifelong friends during that uh, time. And I started working after as an archivist at the National Archives of Canada in Ottawa and eventually made my way to the World Bank Group Archives. I'm a, I'm a mission-driven kind of person. I find it very easy to see the link between my work and the work of, of the unit and, and the furtherance of the mission of my organization, the World Bank, and to see how accountability through documentary evidence that has integrity, that is reliable and is authentic, how that information can transform the organization that generates it. Great, April. Many thanks for this. I absolutely love the idea how you describe the archives or archives in general as the underlying resource for uh, so many of our society's institutions. So you said it before, um, you work for the World Bank Group, one of the major institutions that came out of the Bretton Woods Agreement of um, 1944, when a new global monetary order was set up after the World War. So the other major institution that was created then was the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. Now, could you tell our listeners a bit more about the origins of the World Bank and its evolution? Why is it a somewhat special bank? The World Bank Group is, it's a special place. It's the oldest, the largest, the only multi-regional, multi-sectoral development bank in the world. As you said, was formed 
In Bretton Woods, the Articles of Agreement were formed uh, in 1944. The Articles were ratified in December 1945, and the World Bank started business in June of 1946. We have 189 member countries and uh, twin goals uh, of eliminating poverty and promoting shared prosperity around the world. Um, and those twin goals have, have always existed in, in various forms under, under different vocabulary, but have, have always been with us since 1946. And our first name was the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. That's how we were born. The two words in, in our name tell you everything about what we do, right? Reconstruction and development. We were formed to, to help rebuild Europe after the war. But also for a higher purpose, you know, if you look at Bretton Woods, those 44 allied nations that came together, they were trying to create the world that they wanted to see after the end of the Second World War to ensure that another world war would not occur, that we would have a peaceful, prosperous world in which we could all live. And how do you create peace and prosperity through economic development, through global cooperation, through strong societies that are thriving. And that's what they wanted. The first loans were basically to help rebuild Europe after the war. We were a re reconstruction bank. Uh, our first loan was 0001, number one, to France. And in those early years, for your listeners who know US history, the US Marshall Plan came in quite quickly to sort of become the primary actor in rebuilding Europe after the war. And so we, looked at the other part of our mandate, reconstruction and development. So development, let's help our developing countries also achieve prosperous growth. And our first development loans to a, a developing country were to, we had the first two were to Chile in 1948. They were water related. One was for irrigation and the other was for an electrical grid. That's something special about, about the bank is how it has evolved over all of these years, always to meet the needs of members. We were constantly reinventing ourselves, always to meet the needs of larger society and the people in our, in our member countries. So in 1956, the bank created a new arm of its organization called the International Finance Corporation. We were under a lot of criticism from outside saying, you know, you work with public sector, um, organ, you know, with governments to, to do development work, but you're completely ignoring the private sector. That's not a good thing. And so we said, okay, let's just create a brand new organization out of nothing. We did the same in 1960 with the International Development Association, commonly known as IDA. We were, again, getting a lot of criticism. You only work with creditworthy countries, with countries who are already kind of doing okay. What about the really poor countries, the ones who are struggling, the ones who are heavily indebted? How do you work with those countries? Our articles of agreement wouldn't permit it. So we just created a new, a, another arm of the World Bank. At that point, we became the World Bank Group because we had the IFC with us, International Finance Corporation. And now we had IDA to work with less creditworthy countries where we were giving them grants. So not just loans, but grants. And we've always sort of been pivoting to meet those needs. We were uh, sort of more of a large infrastructure bank. 
in the early years doing big transportation systems, uh, electrical grids, power, dams, irrigation, sort of these large infrastructure projects for creditworthy countries. But in the 1970s, under our president at the time, Robert McNamara, we pivoted to development, actually kind of a radical shift where the bank just exploded in size. We grew in number, the loans, the loans um, grew by 12 times within a couple of years. We started working on in other sectors like health, gender, environment and climate in this time. And it was because of that shift to actually center the, the people living in poverty. How do we help people in our client countries live a better, better life? And so that pivot in the 70s was also an instrumental time in our evolution. And since then, you know, always shifting to meet the needs of members, decentralizing, putting a huge number of staff, you know, 50% or more of our staff into country offices to be closer to the members, putting the clients in the driver's seat of their own development plans under Jim Wolfenson in the 90s, uh, tackling taboos like corruption and AIDS. That was you know, something new in the 90s that we were doing. The Human Capital Index under President Kim a few a few years ago, and our current president, who is really focused on things like debt transparency and climate change action and addressing, of course, the COVID crisis in our member countries. What makes the bank so special? You know, we started in those early days to, to rebuild Europe after the war but we have constantly been shifting and evolving to meet the needs of members and to help countries prosper and be peaceful. Thanks, April. Thinking about it, what a success story the reconstruction of Europe has been for everybody, right? For the European continent, but as well for the World Bank, because it was the basis for for the bank to develop into this global leader of um, development finance. People are saying that there is even some parallels now with U.S. infrastructure spending at home, that this mm-hmm. could be easily compared to these early initiatives in Europe and, and later in Eastern Europe. Thanks for telling us about the, a short version of the history of the bank. So let's, let's turn to your archive now, the World Bank archive. What is unique about the bank's archive? Well, first of all, we we have the holdings of of the World Bank going back to 1945, the oldest, the largest, the only multi-regional, multi-sectoral development bank in the world. So our holdings are pretty special. They document the bank's engagement with its countries, the development of countries, the development of policy approaches to poverty reduction, a very special set of records. But what's kind of interesting about the World Bank Group Archives is we're in IT. The World Bank Group Archives sits organizationally in the Information and Technology Vice Presidency of the World Bank, and that gives us a a lot of pros and cons. We can talk about that in a little bit. Another thing that makes us quite special is that we have responsibilities throughout the life cycle of the records. So from the beginning of the record's life, when the information is created or received, all the way through to the end when we dispose of the records, either through destruction in accordance with our retention schedules or preservation in the archives forever and then into the archival afterlife beyond. And 
Another thing that I want to say about what makes the World Bank Group Archive so special is its staff. We have an incredible group of staff who work with us in the archives, a motley crew of uh, archivists and records managers and information governance specialists, digital preservation specialists. I'm very lucky to be working with all of them. So I'll say maybe a little bit about the records management function, since this also might be unusual for some of your listeners who work in archives, that in some international organizations, the records management function is built in to an archival function. We are the owners of the bank's records management policy. Uh, We write the retention and disposition schedules that tell us how long we keep information, for what purpose, and what happens when the staff don't need the information anymore. We train and give guidance to bank staff on information governance um, and the care and control of information. We work with IT to build uh, information governance controls, records controls into the electronic systems where the current information is being generated, which will eventually become part of the archives down the road. We run an oral history program on the archives end. We do digital preservation and we do what we call the four Ds. Description, declassification, digitization, and discovery. And we can talk a little bit about those items as well as we go along. But just to let your listeners know, we use the international standard for archival description for describing our archival materials We have a catalog where all this information resides. We declassify records over 20 years of age. This might also be surprising to some of your listeners. The World Bank Group Archive, something that makes us quite special is we have the sole authority within the World Bank to declassify records to the public that are over 20 years old. And this is something that we do, of course, very carefully (laughs) and with a lot of training and with a lot of consultation. It enables us to make the the archives of the bank public and get it out there for research. And we create, of course, all of the digital platforms where we can enable the discovery of the archival collections on the web for researchers to use around the world, anytime, anywhere, no matter where they are in the world. It sounds like the archives within the the institution of the World Bank has quite a a unique position, like I would even say a a very powerful one. Given that the World Bank is a public um, institution, there there is a different um, need for making the records public than probably for a private commercial bank. But nonetheless, um, this idea that you described that the archives are in a very central point. It is where the records management meets IT, where current records meet older ones, um, which is not everywhere the case. In many other institutions, often the archives are at the end of the life cycle, but not so much involved in the creation. So I think that gives you a a very good um, position to create a very coherent archive, which is then more valuable for researchers from all over the world. And uh, yes, indeed, the 20-year declassification is um, unique. There's very few institutions, as far as I know, that, that do it that way. So basically, this relationship between the archives, IT, and records management, which is a challenge all archivists all over um, financial institutions face in, in the same way, is an easy one at the World Bank, isn't it? Well, being in IT can be tough. 
it's a great thing to be in IT at the bank. It's kind of a, it is a match made in heaven in a lot of ways, but it can also be tough. You know, we're not coders. We're not computer engineers. Although we're technically oriented and we understand how systems work, especially how records creators use those systems, we don't always speak the same language of IT. But as you say, being at that intersection where IT and records management and archives meet is a powerful place to be. We have an opportunity to affect the quality and scope of the archives of the future by being involved early in the life cycle with records creators and with the tools that they use to create those records, which are now all digital. So at the same time, you know, we bring a special kind of expertise to our IT colleagues as well that they also enjoy from us, you know, our expertise in information governance, in retention and disposition, in a whole host of data issues like data privacy, for example, access to information. Our expertise helps our IT colleagues also control the information, control the flow of it, make it more usable, findable, relevant for staff to ease the operations of the organization itself. So it is a very powerful place to be, most definitely. Before we move on to the next question, um, tell us a bit more about the four Ds, description, declassification, digitization, and um, discovery. So I'll talk a little bit about description. The World Bank Group is not an archives right? It's not an archival institution. It's a development organization. Its primary goal is to eliminate poverty around the world. <laughs> this is a very important goal. And the lion's share of the resources goes towards this goal, right, rightfully. And so we have to do some pretty innovative things in the archives to stay relevant, to work within our power, but also within our constraints to do everything we can to shepherd this incredible collection of materials to the discovery point where people can use it and learn from it. We've devised some pretty innovative ways of doing our work in order to save time and money. And I'll give you some examples on the description side. We use a, a method in archival practice called more product, less process. MPLP is the acronym where we use a lot of contextual metadata available from our systems, another good reason to be within the records creator and IT. We use a lot of the data within our systems to help inform our descriptions of the context of the records and the content of the records. We don't do traditional arrangement where you see archivists working with folders and moving papers around and making nice arrangements in boxes. We don't do that. We work mainly with the metadata to uh, create meaningful descriptions that will help users find what they need. We also have used other World Bank platforms to surface archival metadata that aren't traditional archival discovery tools. So for example, the World Bank's one of its major activities is the implementation of development projects in countries. So we, we build a road in Tanzania or we teach teachers in Bangladesh 
these are the projects that we implement to help our countries. We have a big portal on the World Bank's website, not on the archives part of the website, but on the World Bank's website called the Projects and Operations Portal. And it holds all kinds of information and metadata about each of the projects, even the first loan to France, right? Loan 001 goes all the way back to 1945. What do you need to know about that loan? How much money they gave? What was the procurement? Uh, what were the terms of the loan? Who worked on the loan? There's all this metadata from our systems that's available about each loan. And this is where people go outside the bank to learn about the bank's projects. This is where they go. You can see reports there, uh, the board decisions about the loans, all in this one portal. Why on earth would the archives make that user go to another place to find information about the archival holdings related to that project? when we could just have them surface in that particular portal. So that's what we did. We put our metadata about the holdings of each project, archival holdings for each project on the projects and operations portal, instead of having them go to the catalog. It's much faster and easier. We don't do the description. So a little shortcut there, but it provides enough context for the information to be understood. So we have these little tricks and ways of sprinkling our archival holdings, our archival metadata into other parts of the website for people to discover because it's easier for them and it's easier for us. So that's on description. Declassification we talked about. We do the declassification for records over 20 years old. This is something that we do very carefully and with consultation with lots of groups. But we also disclose metadata for restricted information. This is also maybe a little bit different. We might have reports or archival information that is not yet public, but we put basic bibliographic metadata on the web for people to find. So we have a report about a road project in Tanzania and it's not yet public but we put the metadata, the title, the date, a few other things on the web for people to find with a little button so people can request that the information be declassified. So disclosing metadata for restricted information is also something that we do. On digitization, we have a fledgling digitization uh, project that just sort of trucks along. As some of your listeners might know, digitization in an archives is, takes time and has to be done very carefully. We have information about our digitization program on our website, worldbank.org slash archives. So if people are interested in how we prioritize or how we do the work, they can check it out there. All of the digitization happens at our secret underground facility in Pennsylvania. Well, the World Bank is located in Washington, D.C. Its headquarters is in Washington, D.C., but our preservation facility is in a, a secret underground location in Pennsylvania. Um, and that's where all of our digitization happens. And then discovery. We have a lot of ways that we make our information available. I spoke a little bit about some of the surprising things like the projects and operations portal. But we also have our, our incredible website, worldbank.org slash archives. We like to create products that enable the discovery of our holdings by thinking about our users not as 
serious academics versus not serious academics. We like to think about our users as, and I'll put them in air quotes, air quotes dabblers and air quotes diggers. The dabblers are the ones that just want to learn a little bit about the history, explore a little bit, be inspired by the history of the World Bank and how we've worked with countries over the years. We have tools like the historical timeline, timeline.worldbank.org, which is dynamic. You can explore all these cool little facts about the bank over time. The archival photo catalog, archivesphotos.worldbank.org, another place where people can go to find beautiful photos of rice farmers in Bangladesh or teachers in Jamaica or anything else that the bank has done. We have a beautiful photo, archival photo catalog also online. But then we have our diggers, our researchers who are trying to answer tough questions and look at the primary sources, the archival records to figure out what happened. Why did this happen? How do we make it better? Uh, Those folks we call the diggers, the ones who want to dig into history. And we have a number of products available for them too, um, special, techniques on how to use the catalog, how to find uh, important reports in the documents and reports catalog, how to make a, a good access to information request so that we can help them through the process. Those are the four Ds that sort of drives everything that we do and always finding innovative and creative ways of doing it to meet the needs of users. Uh, fantastic, Abriel. Um, you kind of answered all of my next questions already, but I thought it was very insightful, this idea to really um, recognize and internalize that you put the, the input and your sources and all the material you have there where people already are, where they go anyways. You basically present it to them other than make them dig for it or make them search it in a place where they wouldn't necessarily look. I think that's very important insight to to go where people that are interested in the topic already are. That's very insightful. And as well, the these ideas you mentioned, these buzzwords of the, how do you call it, dabblers and diggers. I <laughs> found some other um, terms I, I very much like, like um, you can go on a research adventure at, at the... World Bank website and that you are open for everyone. That's, um, I think it's a very nice way to meet this mandate of a public institution, right? You talked a little bit already about a very important, if not the most crucial question for each and every archivist or person working in the archival field is how to stay relevant in the orbit of a company's number of other priorities. I think there's a a lot to learn for our colleagues um, from the creative approaches to archiving you take at the World Bank. Let's do a set of quick questions now. In your opinion, which is um, the archive's most precious record? This is such a tough question. So precious record, I'm going to say the membership application files. Membership in the World Bank, our country members are why we exist, right? We exist to help our member countries thrive and progress. And the membership application files are the basis for that. It's how they came to be with us, um, what we intend to do with them, and how we're going to work together to create a better world for the people who live in their country. 
which is the most popular record or popular most popular series what's what's the thing people want to see a lot of people want to see the first loan to France. The first loan to France is sort of that first expression of the bank's efforts to help in the reconstruction of the war. We have, after the war, we have beautiful photos from that loan. We did a lot of work for, for France in the area of transportation and infrastructure and a lot of things. But I actually had a, a colleague of mine told me which was the most downloaded, digitized archival material that we have from our website. Interestingly, the most downloaded are two files from an Indus Basin project in both India and Pakistan. So the bank brokered an agreement between India and Pakistan between 1949 and to 1960 when the Indus Basin Agreement was signed that helped to regulate the fair use of the waters in the Indus Basin. And, you know, frankly, is still contested today, a very hot issue. Um, and after the agreement was made, the bank was able to implement a number of water-related projects in the Indus Basin. And we have a very unique set of records that reflect the negotiation between the two countries and the subsequent projects that were put in place in the Indus Basin that are very, very popular and remarkably the most downloaded from our website. Yeah, who, who would have thought, but I can imagine that this is very interesting to look at from I know, a point of diplomacy or um, many other aspects. Um, perfect. So do you have a most secret record? The World Bank doesn't. We don't have secrets. That's not a thing. It, you know, we, all of our, our access to information policy says all information from the World Bank is open to the public, except for information that falls under one of 10 exceptions. So I'll give you an example. If I had to say what was the most secret, it's something that falls under one of these 10 exceptions, and that is the personnel files of bank staff. So my personnel file, my HR file, has all kinds of secret information about me, right? It's protected because it's my personal data, my social security number in Canada, my address, my bank account information, right? Like those are the kinds of things that we restrict from the public. But our access policy is pretty open, uh, particularly for information over 20 years old. So we, we do make quite a lot available. Okay, so no secrets other than the <laughs> secret location in Pennsylvania. That's <laughs> right. That's right. That's a secret for sure. <laughs> okay, perfect. So is there something like an overrated record? Yeah, I mean, it depends on your on what kind of research you're doing, right? If I had to pick the most overrated, I would say that they are the photos of annual meetings and loan signings. <laughs> loan signings, we have folks in our country units that work with the country, the, the governments. They think, wow, the first loan that, um, that Kenya ever signed, that's an important loan. Do you have pictures of the moment in time when the loan was approved? And yes, we do. Back in the day, um, the loan signing, the approval for the loan was a big ceremony. There were all these fancy people from the government and high officials in the bank and then, you know, on the public side. There's lots of 
flags and the people are signing the documents and the flash bulbs are going off and they are the most boring pictures <laughs> you know a bunch of usually men sitting around a table signing a document if i had to say most overrated the lone signing pictures i agree probably more interesting to see pictures a little bit before and then an hour later of, of right. signing yeah right so uh, what's the most underappreciated um, set of records this is an also an excellent question in the early days of the bank in the late 40s to the to the late 50s the bank was a completely experimental organization multilateralism extremely fragile was this going to work who how are we going to do this staff had to build this institution from scratch they had to write the policies how do we order pencils how do we process a loan all the early organizational administrative and policy creation records of the bank are the most underappreciated they tell an incredible story of how tiny group of dedicated development and economic development specialists came together to create the conditions for an organization that would become what it is today not many people know about these i wish more people did so Go, go, look at those records. They're the best. It's, it makes sense, right? So these early experiences of learning by doing uh, can be very, um, very important lessons for people within institutions for their own policies and um, policy making. I agree. We already learned that, um, you know, we can find topics from biodiversity to pandemic, Afghanistan to Zimbabwe. So apart from, from these early records, uh, you just mentioned which are the most interesting topics now for young researchers that come to your archive? Who would you like to encourage to check out your holdings? Which are the treasures to be explored, the surprises you hold? Well, this is such a tough question. The, the way that we do this work is not because we think research is going to happen down. We can't predict you know, what the future of research is going to be. This is why we care for the holdings of the, of the institution in the way that we do, so that researchers can encounter this documentary evidence, analyze it using tools that work for them, and come to their own conclusions about what they're doing. I think what's really interesting about our work, for example, in climate change, people will be surprised that the bank's work in climate change started in the early 70s, a long time ago. It wasn't just a 90s buzzword or even a buzzword for today that people are talking about. The bank started in that area in the 1970s. Um, debt relief is another one where debt relief work started way back in the 60s and 70s, maybe even earlier that debt relief and, and um, he the heavily indebted poor countries initiative is a new thing. It's really not, you know, it goes way, way, way back. And our website is created in a way to help you sort of work through what's available now, fast, easy, what's available online, the big flagship reports, the timeline events that help you to understand the trajectory of what's going on, our catalog, which is, you know, well organized and described working with an archivist to start at that high level, get all the information you can from the secondary and the easily, 
easily found primary sources first, then digging down a level, digging down a level, digging down a level. An archivist will guide you through each of the steps to sort of get down to the level where you need to be to, to do your research. As I said, the bank covers all countries, Afghanistan to Zimbabwe, but also all sectors in the health sector, in fra uh, fragile states, reconstruction, we cover it all. So my advice for young researchers, if you're working in poverty reduction, if you're looking at economic development over time, how countries have brought themselves out of poverty and into development, come to us first, look at our website, check out all of the resources that we have available online, make your request. We have an incredible team of archivists who work with you one-on-one -on -one to find what you need. It's a great process and one that's very easy and straightforward to do. Perfect. So basically all of our um, researcher listeners are invited to contact you first and you'll find uh, something valuable for them. Fantastic. So April, what's your favorite thing to do inside of the archive? I'm the manager of the archives now, but when I was a, a baby archivist, I, and I still am, I'm a data junkie. I love to work with data, the metadata from our catalog, the metadata from our record center, spreadsheets and APIs, and all of these fun things to manipulate the data, to understand the holdings, understand what we have, how we can make it available in creative ways. I'm a total data junkie, but now that I'm the manager, I don't have a ton of time for that. But one of the other things that I love is working with our clients inside and internal staff, external public. Um, I love to see that moment in the reading room where a member of the public, they might be the first person outside the World Bank to look at a set of records that were just declassified. And the look of joy on their face when they discover something that they didn't know or that they're just discovering for the first time is really an uh, incredibly satisfying thing about being an archivist. Oh, that sounds indeed very rewarding uh, to make somebody happy with a record. What's your favorite thing to do outside of the archive? I'm a cyclist. I commute to work by bike. Uh, you know, when we're actually going into work, when once this pandemic is over, I love cycling around uh, my city of Washington, D.C., where I live. I love finding little hidden pockets of fun things around the town. I love visiting with my friends and family in Canada, where I'm from, kayaking and uh, hiking in the sort of northern part of the country is something I, I love to do. And back at home, if the weather's bad, I, uh, I'm a quilter. I quilt and I knit and I, I love to read mystery novels, one of my secret indulgences. Fantastic. Uh, thanks, April, for sharing um, all your expertise and giving us an insight to the workings of the World Bank and the World Bank Archive. Maybe you want to share your, your Twitter or something with our listeners in case they want to hear more from you. Of course, our website, worldbank.org slash archives. I am on Twitter at April Archivist, and uh, we do have a hashtag that we use on social media, uh, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, hashtag WBG Archives. Fantastic. Thank you very much, April. This was Finance and History, the EABH podcast. EABH is an independent, international non-for-profit organization that promotes research into the history of finance, policy making and the archives. 
please join us as a member in order to support our work. You can find details online at bankingistry.org. Oh,